I bring you greetings from Santa Cruz Baptist Church in Santa Cruz, California. And from the bottom of our hearts, we are grateful for churches like you who have partnered with us in the gospel. Uh, by God's grace, the word is being preached there faithfully, uh, even this morning as we speak. Uh, we moved there and started a Bible study in our living room that has now grown to about 150 people. Um, the word is being faithfully preached. The gospel is being shared. People are coming to know the Lord. Uh, we've baptized six saints in the last couple of months, and God is good. Um, so as a foreign missionary to a foreign country called California, I could come here and share a lot about what we've been doing, and I'm happy to do that after the service, but instead I would rather share about the Jesus that we preach there. And so, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Um, there's going to be a lot of cross-reference passages in this sermon that will be up on the screen for you, but I want to encourage you guys to stay rooted uh, in Mark chapter 6. And uh, this sermon is titled, The Storm-Tossed Disciples. Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Jesus uh, walking on water has become one of those phrases that's associated with or synonymous with the miraculous. Maybe you've heard it said about someone, man, that guy, he walks on water, meaning they regularly pull off the impossible. Or maybe the phrase is used when it comes to expectations. What, do you expect me to walk on water or something? meaning that the noted expectations are too high to accomplish for a mortal man or woman. While us surfers in Santa Cruz constantly talk about walking on water, what we have here in the text is not exactly the same thing. What we have here is, in fact, miraculous. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway, painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Our two points for this sermon to hang truth on are these. Number one, storm-tossed moments. And number two, storm-tossed revelation. So starting with point one, storm-tossed moments. Uh, Before we launch into these verses, uh, I just want to point out how differently Jesus does things than most of us would normally do them. Uh, In the text just before the one that I read, uh, Jesus had this huge crowd who basically mobbed him trying to see a miracle. And Jesus didn't disappoint. He fed 5,000 plus people with just five loaves and two fish. Astonishing. Now, I don't know about you, but... I'd probably think, man, this is great PR we've got going here. We've gathered a crowd. We have their attention. Let's keep the momentum going, Jesus. Get the message out. We're cooking with gas now. Keep going. Come on, Jesus. But that's not what he does, is it? Look at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, why would he do this? Why wouldn't he keep the crowd there and build on the momentum that he had created? Well, in its most basic form, it wasn't time. See, the people in the crowd seemed to put together what Jesus taught at the feeding just before this. They saw this guy Jesus do this miracle and they put the pieces together that this guy is the Messiah. Even though they didn't quite understand what that meant. See, messianic fervor was at a fever pitch. This crowd was even ready to take Jesus and forcefully make him king. But they didn't quite get it. And it wasn't time for Jesus to die. Even more, the disciples, the twelve, didn't quite get it either. And it seems that Jesus didn't want them there in the crowd fueling this fire. So, he gets them out of there. And he dismisses the crowd. Jesus doesn't always do things the way that we think he should. And here's the truth that I want you to hear. He's good and right and loving when he doesn't do things the way we think he should. He knows what he's doing. He's always purposeful in his actions, even when they don't make sense to us. Now, let's look at verse 45 again closely. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. You see the language there? He made his disciples get into the boat, knowing full well what was ahead of them that night. See, they weren't in a storm because of their disobedience or because they had misheard Jesus somehow. They were there precisely because they had heard him. And obeyed. 
Jesus knew what was ahead for the disciples. And yet he made them get into the boat and go before him. Do you understand that, Christian? Yes, sometimes our sin brings about hardship or trial on this earth. Sometimes our sin brings about storms. But sometimes storms come precisely because we're in the center of God's will. When it comes to prosperity theology, this is a kill shot. See, prosperity theology tells you that if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy, and that nothing bad will ever come your way. Not so. That's not the teaching of Jesus or the clear history of the entire Bible. I think about this text in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. This is such an alarming passage. Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter, and he says this. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you see that? Simon probably wanted Jesus to say, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, Peter, but don't worry, brother. I said no, because you're my disciple, and everything's just going to go well for you. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? His response wasn't, I'm going to keep you from any trouble. His response was, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The disciples in our text today are in the storm not because of sin, but precisely because they're in the center of God's will. And if that's you here today, if you're in the middle of a storm, there's gold here in this text for you. So hang tight with me. But there's something else I want us to see here. The last time that the disciples were in a storm in a boat, even here in the book of Mark, Jesus was with them in the boat. Not this time. This time, Jesus is not physically present with them. He's sent them out before him on the lake. And here's what I want us to see. This text is a portrait of the age that we live in as a church. And I don't just mean this particular cultural moment. I mean the time period from Jesus' ascension to his return. While we know from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that he is with us always to the end of the age. We know that's true. But he's not physically present with us right now. And the disciples got a little taste of that here in the boat. They're being pushed into a tumultuous time without the physical presence of Jesus by design. You following me? You see that this is the age that we live in as a church. Tumultuous, storm-tossed times without the physical presence of Jesus. But look at the next verse. Verse 46. It says, And after he had taken leave of them, 
he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus here in verse 46 is both an example and an encouragement to us as believers. First, he's an example. In this critical moment in Jesus' ministry, he gets away to pray. He needs to pray. He needs communion with the Father. And here's the question for us this morning. If Jesus, the sinless Savior, needed to pray, how much more so do we? Jesus was fully faithful in the mission that the Father had called him and sent him on. He needed to pray. Church, we're on mission in a storm-tossed age that Jesus has intentionally pushed us into. Don't neglect prayer. It's one of the most important things that we could do as individual Christians or corporately as a church. Don't neglect prayer. Jesus is an example to us here. Just a a quick side note. Notice that Jesus got a way to pray. So husbands... And specifically, dads, I want to speak to you for a second. Speaking to myself here too. We need to make time for our wives to get away and pray. (laughs) So often she, like Jesus in our text, can't just send her little disciples out on a boat while she gets time to pray. That'd be kind of nice, right? Husbands, dads. We have to make time for our wives to get away to pray. This is one of many ways that we're called to love and care for our wives. So Jesus is an example for us in prayer. But he's also an encouragement here. Jesus prays for his followers in the midst of storms. Isn't that comforting? Let's just admit it. 2020 was a storm-tossed year. 2020 felt a lot like verse 48, right? Making headway, painfully, wind against us. But brothers and sisters, Jesus, in the midst of that storm-tossed year, and even now, is interceding for us. He's praying for us. While linked to atonement, look at what Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25 says. It says, but he, meaning Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And here we go. Since he is always, he always lives to make intercession for them. He's praying for us constantly. Similarly, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He prays for us, brothers and sisters. As a disciple of Jesus, he prays for you. Look, as shepherds of the flock of God, your pastors regularly pray for you. 
And I hope that's encouraging. But that's nothing. (laughs) Jesus prays for you. It's astonishing. Be encouraged by this truth this morning. There's this amazing quote from a guy named Robert Murray McChain. And he says this. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Let that truth sink in for a minute. Jesus prays for you. So Jesus purposefully puts us into storms. And then he prays for us. But there's more. Look at verses 47 and 48. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So Jesus is alone on the land. He's not physically in the boat. Yet, he sees them. He's intentionally put them in the storm and he's prayed for them and he sees them. Jesus' focus and heart were deadlocked on his children who were in the midst of the storm. Do you see that? Now, in the Old Testament, there are a number of different names for God to describe who he is. And one of those names is El Roy, the God who sees. And we see this name in Genesis chapter 16 in the story of Hagar. She's in this moment, if you're familiar with the story, Hagar is in this moment of what must have felt like complete abandonment. And the Lord shows up and speaks to her. He tells her that she's pregnant and that he's listened to her in the midst of her affliction. And then look at Genesis 16, verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. El Roy. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. You see what a blessing it is to be seen by God here? Most of us uh, tend to think of God the way we think of Santa Claus, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Most people... Think about being seen by God as this awful thing where he sees you so that he can smite you if you're bad. That's not the idea here, is it? The idea of seeing here is that God knows what's going on in your life. He sees you, he knows you, and he cares deeply. Have you ever worked really hard at something and had someone say to you, I see what you're doing see you. It's the most encouraging thing in the world, right? Well, friends, in the midst of a storm-tossed reality, Jesus sees you. We don't worship a God with blind eyes. We worship a God who sees. 
He prays for you and he sees you. But it's even better than that. Look back at the text, verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He came to them. Eventually, in verse 51, we'll actually see him get in the boat with them. And this is the other side of what I said earlier. Do you realize that while Jesus is no longer physically present with us, he is with us as he promised in Matthew 28. We're not alone. He sent us his spirit who not only dwells upon us, but lives within us. In the middle of a storm-tossed moment, you, Christian, have the prayers of God, but you also have the presence of God. Do you see how this works? The Christian life isn't one of ease and comfort from storms, but it's one of peace and being comforted in the midst of storms because we know who God is. Jesus sends his disciples into storms, but he prays for them. He sees them and he's with them. Point two Storm-tossed revelation. Now, most people, when they think about this text, they, they say, it's about Jesus walking on water. But the main point here isn't about Jesus walking on water. The main point here is about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus revealing his person and his nature to his people. Mark goes to great lengths to make sure that his original audience and us here this morning don't miss his main point. Look at the end of verse 48 and 50. It says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. <laughs> Jesus isn't leaving anything to chance here. There's nothing vague about what he's doing. It's so important that his disciples and us here this morning know who he is. He could have gotten another boat and caught up with them. Totally could have done that. He could have met them on the other side the next day. He does it. He walks to them on the sea. Why does he do this? Well, he's intentionally appropriating the description of God from the book of Job. In Job chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, it's asking these questions. It says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, in the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? What's the answer to those questions? Only God. It's God alone who tramples or treads on the waves of the sea. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? 
He's God. This isn't simply a text about Jesus walking on water. Or even about him rescuing the disciples, as cool as that is. It's about a manifestation of Jesus' deity. He's God. And what about this strange phrase in our text? Maybe you caught it. He meant to pass them by. Weird, right? He meant to pass them by. Did Jesus just mean to ignore the disciples? Was he unaware of their struggle or just unobservant? No. Look at the next verb, uh, verse that I left out of Job 9. Job 9, verse 11, immediately following these other verses, Job has described God as alone trampling on the waves of the sea. Then verse 11, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Jesus is appropriating the description of God from Job 9. Treading on the waves of the sea. Passing by them. But even if we miss this reference to Job, it'd be hard to miss the bigger idea throughout the entire Old Testament. In several critical moments in Old Testament history, God reveals himself to his people and his prophets in what's called a theophany. So think of these theophanies as places where God shows up. Places where God reveals himself to people. And one of the most famous of these is Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. It says, Moses said, he's speaking to God here, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, meaning God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Do you see that? God reveals himself to Moses. How? By passing by. Similarly, when the prophet Elijah on Mount Horeb, Elijah is going through this rough time. Why? Because of his faithfulness to God. Sound familiar? It's exactly like the disciples in this text. And in the midst of that, God reveals himself to Elijah. 1 Kings 19.11. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Again, Jesus is doing what he's doing. And Mark is using the language that he does to make it clear to us. Jesus is the glory of God. He is God. He treads on the waves of the sea and he passes by like the theophanies of old. And then verse 49, it says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. 
For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, all kinds of people try to take this passage and just kind of explain away the supernatural or the miraculous here. They say things like, Oh, he wasn't really walking on water. Don't be confused. He was walking on a sandbar or some kind of channel of land out there. Or they'll say, uh, he wasn't really walking on water. The salt content was really high and it allowed people to float more than normal. So that's what's happening in this text. No. First, remember that they're at least three to three and a half miles out at this point, according to the book of John. This isn't a sandbar. But look at the disciples' reaction here. They thought it was a ghost. They're terrified. And that tells us all we need to know. If people walking out there on sandbars or salt water was a normal and known thing to them, they wouldn't have been scared at all. This just would have been normal. They would have seen this kind of thing before. But it's not. It's not normal. It's miraculous and supernatural. Besides, as Christians, we believe something way crazier than that this guy walked on water. We believe he rose from the dead. This is just a foretaste of what Jesus is capable of. So Jesus walks on water and then he speaks to them. And what does he say? Take heart. It is I. It is I. These uh, words in Greek are actually two words, not three. Ego, a me. Ego, a me. And this phrase to the original ear would have been laced with double meaning as he spoke them. On the surface, it can mean, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's just me. But more importantly, it means I am. I am, which is the divine name revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And then he tells him his name. I am. The name I am or Yahweh. It's often written in all caps. The Lord in our Bibles. This is the proper name for God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in Mark 6? In the midst of their terror. He comes to them, walking on the water, passing them by, and saying, take heart, I am. For those who believe that Jesus never really claimed to be God, he sure picked a strange way of doing it. Now, he's wanting his disciples to know, without a doubt, who he is. So who is Jesus? He's the God who has revealed himself. He's the great I am. Do not be afraid, he says. So God incarnate walks up on the water, speaks, and then, verses 51 and 52. This is shocking. 
And he got into the boat with him, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What a statement. Isn't this mind-blowing? Think about all the disciples have seen up to this point in the life of Jesus. Even in the book of Mark, they've seen healings. They've seen demons flee. They've seen a 12-year-old girl raised from the dead right before this. And verse 52 tells us that they didn't get the bread thing. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. Ah, man, that's that's heavy. These are guys who walked and talked with Jesus every day. They'd even been preaching the good news and on mission, sharing the gospel. And they didn't get the bread thing because their hearts were hardened. There's a warning for us here who follow Jesus. Don't miss this. It's possible to be here in church week in and week out doing the bread thing and taking the Lord's Supper and yet to have your heart hardened, missing the reality of Jesus. It's possible. But here's the encouraging truth. Jesus knew their hearts. He saw their hearts on their faces. They were terrified. They cried out. They couldn't keep hidden that their hearts were hardened. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, got in the boat anyway. Do you see God's grace here? Jesus would have been justified in walking on past them, going on about his business. He could have left them there struggling in their hardness of heart in the midst of the storm. But he doesn't. He loves his disciples. He gets in the boat. The storm stills and he gets them safely to shore. See this. He loves to rescue even hard-hearted disciples. He loves us, friends. And 1 John 4, 19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. Do you see the grace of Jesus? That's the kind of God that I want to follow with all of my life. I can trust that God with everything. And if this is you this morning, I want to encourage you If you have missed the bread thing, if you are hard-hearted, there's encouragement here. Let go of your oars. Let go of striving. Let go of sin and unbelief. Trust in Christ. He's the only one who can rescue you. He came to this earth and lived a perfect life in every single way. He died on the cross to pay the full penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later, 
proving that he was who he said he was and solidifying that the payment that he made was actually accepted by God the Father. If you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus calls you to turn from sin and to trust him today. That's how you can be rescued. And verses 53 through 56 are there to show you exactly what Jesus is capable of. They hit the shore and those who flock to him are made well. It's a physical reality of what Jesus does for us spiritually. He's calling you. Come to him and be made well. Now, if you are a Christian, the response for you is really no different. You're called to a life of repentance and faith. Daily turning from sin. Daily trusting in Jesus, the great I am. I hope you see in this text that he's committed to you. He loves you. In the midst of storms, even in the midst of hard-heartedness, he prays for you. He sees you. He's with you. And he's God. Trust him. Lean on him. Find joy and satisfaction in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning, once again, for your word. Every time we open your word, we get to see who we are and we get to see who you are. And that is a gift to us. God, we confess that we are so often like the disciples in this boat, straining and striving, wind against us, often hard-hearted. But yet you see us you pray for us, and you love us. We thank you for that truth this morning. Help us to live in light of that truth this week and the rest of this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.